Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. This is actually airing one day early on a Sunday instead of a Monday because there are two products actually being released this afternoon. So I figured I would get this out as quickly as possible and hopefully anybody who's interested will get an opportunity to buy one before they sell out because I have a feeling they're both going to sell out. But also have a great interview with one of the guys who worked on the MSU Audio Zelda team, um, which is, I, we talked about a lot of stuff I would have never even thought about. So anybody who's interested in the Zelda games, definitely check that out. Zelda MSU Audio Games. Uh, and then just the news and Q&As as normal. So I guess let's just jump right into it. GameTech is putting up a batch of 200 high-def NES kits for sale tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now these are the HDMI mod kits for the Nintendo that are absolutely awesome. They were designed by Kevtris, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about it, um, and they're really a must-have for any NES enthusiast. They range from 120 to 140, depending on which revision console you have, um, and they don't work with the Sharp Twin Famicoms or the um, original Famicom consoles yet, I think they're still kind of working on that. They're also offering a capacitor kit with it, which I think is a pretty good idea for anybody who, you know, is doing all this work on their Nintendo anyway. You might as well just replace the capacitors because they're the cause of so many weird little problems. And even if you're not having issues yet, um, you know, they do have a shelf life, so they will eventually go. So by replacing them now, you're kind of extending the life of your console. So it's something I would recommend. They don't really add much cost. Um, also, GameTech is not doing the installation himself. He has a list of installers on there that's going to be doing it. Um, so you have to buy the kit and then, you know, get your NES and then go through the installers. I'll also link on my page as well. Um, and if anybody uh, needs, like, a, a brushing up of what the high-def NES is and what it does, I'll also link to the page on my site that has the full review of it. But I'm pretty excited and uh, I'm hoping to get another one as well. Another product being released today... HD Retrovision is releasing their first batch of cables for sale today at about 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So this is the first run of production before it goes into full production, um, which I believe is going to be at the end of the summer. So these will probably sell out pretty quick, but they should be back in regular stock soon, you know, within a few months, I would think. Um, But anybody that's been waiting for these, definitely log on tonight and pick them up. Um, I believe both the Super Nintendo and the Genesis versions are being released tonight. Um, I've been testing both, and I think they're just a great solution for somebody who just wants a component video 240p signal. So uh, check them out if you're interested. Some more product release info. Um, The AVS, which is the FPGA-based Nintendo console that outputs 720p, um, that's being shipped to the U.S. around late July, which means by the time he gets them in and gets ready for sale, um, they should be hitting customers probably around September. Um, I'm not sure exactly when, but he said he's going to probably have a a pre-order open around the time that they arrive or ship. Um, So I'll keep everybody updated on that, especially when there's more info. I hate to just talk about something that's like a bunch of maybes, but I just wanted to keep everybody in the loop because I get a lot of questions about that. Um, I haven't tried one myself yet. 
Uh, and I'm trying to get Bunny Boy on for an interview as well. So hopefully I'll be able to get more info and him on here to tell you directly kind of what's going on with the project and when we could all start playing him. Someone on the Shmups forum has created a list that tells you which of the Wii's virtual console games support 240p natively. Um, I didn't really know too much about this until a few years ago when uh, I bought a few of my favorite games on the Wii and it worked perfect. And then I bought a TurboGrafx-16 game because I'd never really played any of those before, and it was in 480i. So um, I guess now he's compiled a list of which is which, and also Blizz has come up and um, posted a link to uh, something he did on the Circuit Board DE forums that teaches you how to force a 240p mode by changing around the actual DAL file. So um, that's good if your Wii is soft modded. Um, if not, then you're kind of just stuck referencing the list and seeing which is which. But um, but yeah, I mean, I thought that was really cool, and uh, I thought it was great that somebody actually created this list. Um, and I think the username is Einzelhers. I'm really terrible at pronouncing these screen names, so sorry if I just butchered that. But yeah, I'll leave a link to it, and I also updated the Wii Virtual Console page of my site to include this as well, because I think sharing information like this is really important and makes things a lot easier for people. So uh, thanks to both of those guys. The mystery of the dark screen with the DB Graphics Booster has finally been solved. So the DB Graphics Booster is an RGB board for the PC Engine and TurboGrafx-16 consoles that plugs right into the back, which is no installation required, um, and it outputs a really high-quality RGB signal. Um, I have one, I love it, never had any issues with it, but a lot of people were reporting that the screen was extremely dark on their FrameMeister and on their Sony PVMs when using it. Um, we couldn't really figure out what was wrong with it because people that were having issues would send the boards back and they would test fine. Uh, I even had somebody test send one to me and it worked perfect with mine, but we finally figured out what the issue is. The capacitors in the SCART head. So a quick little background. This board uses a Genesis 2 style AV connector uh, for its RGB out just to make things easier. So rather than have to manufacture you know, a completely different proprietary RGB cable, you could just tell people, hey, go get a Genesis 2 style one. Well, the Genesis 2 official cables from Sega didn't have the capacitors in them. It only had 75 ohm resistors. But for some reason, all the specs I read online say that you need 75 ohm, 75 ohm resistors and the console end of the cable, and 220 UF capacitors and the SCART head. So RetroGamingCables.uk made them exactly like the official Sega cables, for obvious reasons, but Retro Console Accessories in the US made them exactly to spec as was found online. So anybody that was using her cables got a perfect image, and anybody was using that the cables and using the cables from the UK was getting a dark picture. So all that needs to be done is just to simply add 220 UF capacitors into the SCART head, and the problem's fixed. Or you could, of course, just get a different cable. But it was neat to finally get to the bottom of this because it was kind of driving me nuts too. Because I'm a fan of the product, I'm friends with Renee. And, you know, both of us were kind of just knocking our heads together going, what the heck is going on? But it's finally been solved, uh, and Renee has a technical write-up on his website that I linked to that kind of explains what's going on with that. So, uh, yeah, finally, glad we finally got that solved. A game called Shadow Gangs just launched a Kickstarter campaign last week. This is an 80s-inspired ninja fighting game, kind of like Shinobi, um, and it looks pretty cool. I know it's kind of strange to be talking about a Kickstarter when last week I was complaining about the Mighty Number no. 9 Kickstarter campaign, 
But the guy who's making this is a poster on the SMS Power Forums and a retro gaming enthusiast, so I figured I would at least just link to it and uh, let you guys decide if you're interested. But as with all the software Kickstarter campaigns, you know, you, you pay now, you hope it's funded, and you get your game in a year or two. So uh, leave it up to you guys, but definitely wanted to just pass the information along. This next bit isn't really news, but I kind of wanted to share it with everybody to get your opinion on it. Last week on Engadget, one of their writers, Zach Hines, posted an article about his quest for retro gaming and called it pointless. So I have kind of a, a couple of problems with the article. First, he doesn't really post any good information. It's more of just like a rant and showing pictures of things. He talks about the Framemeister and a BVM, but he doesn't really talk about why, what, or anything other than the fact that he was looking for them. And at the end, he basically just said, you know, oh, it was all nostalgia, and once I got to experience it, I just sold everything and didn't really care. You know, that's fair. It's your opinion, I guess. I mean, you work for a big place like Engadget, you're allowed to write whatever you want. But at the very least, I felt he should have just embedded a My Life in Gaming video in there just to show everybody how to go about it. But, you know, not really posting any good information just seems useless for such a big website that gets millions of viewers. But also, calling it pointless and basically saying it's all about nostalgia was a little insulting, because, well, at least to me, maybe not to everybody else, because while, yes, absolutely, nostalgia is what got me into retro gaming again, it's not what keeps me playing the games. So, my favorite game is 2D side-scrollers, and you can't really find too many of them on modern consoles. They're out there, and a lot of them are great, but if you really love that type of game, there are hundreds on the 8-bit and 16-bit consoles. So you really could just, you know, I mean, you could be playing those games the rest of your life and not hit all of them. So for a lot of people, it's just, okay, well, you know, I prefer this type of game, and yes, I do also want to play the games from my childhood, so what do I do? So the fact that he had an article it was just one big rant kind of pissed me off, and I kind of feel like I wanted to talk about it now just to see what all of you guys thought about it. So I'll link to the article, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I just took it the wrong way. Or maybe this was, you know, maybe this was his uh, intention, just to write an article to piss people off to get more people to talk about it. And if that's the case, you've won, Zach. You beat me. But, I don't know, what do you guys think? Now on to the Q&A stuff. Last week I talked about a CDI controller adapter, and YouTube user TooQuickCapri reminded me that it's actually an open source project that could be downloaded on cdiblogspot.com. Um, I'd forgotten all about that, and there's actually a few different controller adapters, but the problem is nobody sells them. So there's the diagrams up there, and you could make them, but I don't think there's any place to find them now. But if anybody's interested in CDI stuff, the uh, cdiiblogspot.com is a pretty cool website to go to. It's just very hard to navigate. You have to scroll all the way down to the bottom of every page to get the stuff, and you know, just be patient with it. Hopefully they'll eventually update it. But uh, thanks to Quick Capri for reminding me of that. Simbin asked, what's my thoughts on HD TV calibration? There's tons of info online, but most are geared towards movie watching and not gaming. Um, to be honest with you, I actually don't calibrate for gaming. I calibrate for movies, and then I just set my TV to game mode whenever I'm playing a game. Um, my, my actual plasma TV, though, doesn't have much of a difference between game mode and not. It's only about half a frame. I, I still turn it on anyway, though, but... Um, I really don't know, and if anybody wants to chime in on that, um, the only thing I could say is definitely use the 240p test suite to calibrate the, you know, the, um, the linear adjustments, but when I actually loaded that on mine just to see, and everything was already perfect because I'd adjusted for uh, home theater use, so that's a good question. Um, and Simbin also said uh, he figured out the wavy lines on his Xbox was from 
uh, power cables leaking frequency onto the Ethernet cable plugged into the console. That's kind of cool. I never, I never thought to think about that or to check it. Um, I, I know my Wii was plugged in with an Ethernet cable. I don't use Wi-Fi, so maybe that was my issue as well. But uh, thanks for letting everybody know. Next, Red2503 was talking about problems with his RGB monitor. He said the screen kind of stretches on the edges, and he's tried to adjust the geometry, but that didn't help. That sounds like it could also be bad capacitors. Um, I've heard plenty of people talk about when they did a full cap replacement and then went back to recalibrate, everything was perfect. But I'd really like to know a place where I can have a CRT calibrated. Um, my buddy James keeps telling me about one in California that's pretty decently priced. He keeps forgetting to send me the link, though, so if you're watching, James, come on. But um, <laughs> uh, if anybody knows any good CRT repair shops anywhere in the world, just let me know, and maybe I could add them to the, uh, the RGB monitors page. I would love to find somebody in New York that was able to do it for all of mine, too. So, yeah, if anybody knows, please let me know. And for the last thing... Um, I exchanged a few emails last week with somebody who purchased a modded SNES Mini on eBay. It had the RGB, S-Video, and uh, LED mod done to it, um, and it was having some trouble, and the seller told him to send or to email me for support, which I never mind helping anybody, but right off the bat, it's a red flag if somebody's not going to um, you know, support their own product. But I asked him to take it apart and take pictures of it, and what he sent me um, was not very good work at all. So I just, uh, you know, I re recommended that he send it back, and I don't think the seller is actually going to let him return it, which stinks, but it's just kind of um, a reminder to everybody, uh, and I got to really, maybe I'll rewrite a lot of the pages to just, you know, try to emphasize the point of if you're going to buy it pre-modded work, make sure to have pictures of the insides before it's sent to you. Um, and try to go through reputable places. There's a few mod shops now that have been popping up, Retrofixes, uh, Voltar Shop. Um, I think Matt from Video Game Perfection's been using a guy for a while. And they're all reputable places that do good work. So, you know, when you have something like this get shipped to you after spending like 200 bucks, I mean, if he had done this work himself and sent me the picture, I wouldn't have criticized it. I would have said something like, hey, you know, good job, but here's a few tips that you could do to make it better. But the fact that somebody's charging for this, and he's selling a lot of them. I checked his eBay feedback. I mean, he probably has junk consoles going out everywhere now. So it's pretty awful, and uh, just a reminder to everybody. Um, and, you know, the other side of this, I also got an email from somebody who asked my opinion on a Game Gear that was being sold for $600. Now, it looked like it was great work. It was McWill's mod inside it. The You know, it did look very high quality, but that's more than double what it would cost for something like that. And I just, you know, I was honest, like, hey, it looks like good work, but it's way too expensive for me, maybe, if you want to spend that. So, I don't know, people, I don't want to say people take advantage of other people on eBay, but maybe it's, you know, maybe they just accidentally don't even realize they're doing it. But, yeah, it's, uh, just everybody keep their eyes open for bad eBay sellers and bad mod work. Okay, up next we have an interview with Retro Dan, who was one of the voice actors for the BS Zelda MSU audio game, and also worked on a bunch of other MSU stuff. Uh, it was actually kind of cool, because he um, contacted me after I mentioned the game last week, and I immediately contacted him back and said, hey, you want to be on the show? I'd love to hear what you have to say. And it's a pretty cool interview. He got um, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that I never realized, and uh, cool little tidbits, especially on how to play the BS games, that I didn't realize that you have to play each level of uh, the full hour through. You can't just save and then go to the next day. But uh, yeah, I mean, I hope everybody enjoys it. If you're not into MSU audio or don't really care about that stuff, maybe I guess 
it's not for you, but anybody that has been playing the games would probably enjoy it. So um, thanks for everybody for listening. Comments, as always, uh, would be appreciated, and I'll see you next week. Hey, guys, we're here with Retro Dan, who is behind some of the Zelda MSU games. What's up, man? Not much. Uh, I'm actually pretty thrilled to be here. I've been following your page for years, and it's been an, an incredible in-depth look into getting top-quality video out of old systems. And as sort of a semi-amateur, semi-professional hacker, nerd sort of modder, I've collected far too many systems and have modded practically all of them. It's actually a real honor for me to be here, so thank you for inviting me. Oh, man, well, thank you. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I've been playing your MSU games since they came out, so I'm pretty excited well, myself. Let, let me stop you right there. I have to confess, I'm not the only... I'm only one person on the team. Right. Um, I was part of the original release of the MSU Link to the Past, uh, but the main programmers were a guy named Konrad Stout over in Germany who goes by the nickname of Con79. There was uh, Michael Reichelt. Um, uh, he's U.S. I'm, I forget where he's from. But we actually, when we ran into some problems, we actually did, in fact, get Ikari01, the guy who created the SD2 SNES, right, yeah. uh, involved for a few of the really big problems. And he helped us nail down some of the details. So all I did was I did some music programming, set some loops. I'm actually a pretty minor part of that project. Um I did the same thing for the Mega Man X uh, MSU one. Played that one as well. Yeah, love that. It's still one of my favorites. So and how about I'm, we um, how about we take it back and start for the people that don't really know? I mean, I just had a, a recent episode where I, I kind of briefly touched upon it, and uh, but I guess let's just kind of start from the beginning because I know um, if I had known about this stuff longer ago, I would have bought an SD to SNES the day it came out. So um, how did you get started in this stuff, and then your involvement in MSU1, and maybe like a small little what exactly it is and how you guys use it? Okay. How I got involved, I've been a video gamer since the late 80s. I've, my first system was an NES. I grew up with it. I loved it. And I've been a nerd for pretty much as long as I can remember. I'm never satisfied with just being good enough. I've always kind of wanted to take things to their natural and sometimes unnatural conclusions, <laughs> technologically speaking. And I think the first thing I ever really got into, technologically speaking, was, well, my dad brought home a a Mac II from the office, one of the an Apple II from the office, mm -hmm. and it was a piece of crap. This was the mid-90s at the time, mm -hmm. and so this was something that was, even at that point in time, wildly out of date. And I took it apart just to see how it works. You know, like little kids do, we're, we're like, oh, how's this work? How's this work? Yeah, I think that's I how a lot of us got described, <laughs> actually, that, I heard it best described, that mindset, uh, by Brian Wecht of Ninja Sex Party and Game Grumps at the, in one of his talks that, Children are perfect scientists. We want to understand. Yeah, and I wanted enough. to understand. And I pulled it apart. And I didn't. <laughs> Not at all. It, and thankfully, my dad and my older brother were pretty technologically inclined. And they somehow, through the experience and wisdom of age and just 
growing up in an earlier time period than I, they knew about this. So they helped me piece it back together. And after that, I started reading books because at that time the internet was not a thing. Right. And I started piecing together things, experimenting. I fried probably four or five computers that my dad brought home just seeing what would work and what definitely wouldn't work. <laughs> um, as far as getting into technology in a, like, uh, console technology and make, and modding that, changing it to do whatever I wanted, um, I first really got into it. I, I got out of video games for a while, uh, busy working, life, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And... I came across a page by Mike J. Moffat, basically the guy who did a an in-depth write-up of component video on Super Nintendo. I found that some page years ago as well, yeah. Sorry, is there a it, delay now? or There seems to be an, an occasional intermittent delay, yeah. I'm not Sorry, sure. I'll edit that part out. Let me... Um... But yeah, the Michael J. Moffat page, I found that one as well. I think yeah. he was a kid when he wrote that. I, I got to talk to him one of these days too, but I'm pretty sure he was like 17 when he wrote that. Yeah, nerd royalty. <laughs> but I found that, and so I ordered a game bit, popped open my Super Nintendo, and yes, had the component video. Lucky. Hooked it up, it all worked. And that was kind of the cliff ed the cliff's edge for me. Just... I took a running jump and leapt wholeheartedly. There's, I think, the oldest system that I haven't modded that I have is the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Everything else has just been chopped up, and even if it's as simple as changing out an LED, mm -hmm. I've opened it up and done something to one of my too many systems. When it comes to the MSU1 stuff, um, there were... All right. A couple years ago, there was this hacker, modder, whatever, who, for my own reasons, I'm not going to name, I have issues with his ideology, I have issues with his methodology. Um, he released, when the MSU-1 specification was uh, released and added into the SD2 SNES flashcard. I thought that there'd be all these people out there, all these super nerds, all these king brains who would jump on the, band on the bandwagon and start really pulling apart all these video games that I loved but I wanted to hear with like an orchestral or a rock soundtrack. And there really weren't. It, it seemed to be abandoned or at least sort of marginalized by the community. They were like, hey, cool, but they were all kind of doing the same thing I was. And there were a couple of half-hearted attempts. There, there's still an incomplete Final Fantasy II, mm -hmm. uh, a minor write-up out there that nobody's ever taken a handle on. And I, I found my way into into bszeldas.net's uh, forums, and I found my way into the uh, the Cricks forum, who's the guy who designed most of the flashcards. Mm -hmm. And I started searching around, and I started looking, and like, there are all these people who have such great knowledge, and they're not doing anything. And then I came across uh, 
Michael Reichelt's page. He did this three-part series on – at the time, it was only two parts. He did this uh, two-part series on adding MSU1 to video games, and I looked it up, and he had a he had a patch that was available that kind of worked. I mean, it played video – it played the correct audio, but it would bug out, and it would cause all these problems, and it's just – it was really annoying because, like, you go into the – sorry, that's that's my multimeter. <laughs> um, you would go into a door in Link to the Past, and it would play the song, and you'd come out, and there'd be kind of this buzz sound and mm-hmm. underneath the, the song that was playing. And then when you entered any other new area, basically any area that called for a new audio file to be played, it would just softlock. It would crash. And I, at the same time, I was reading this write-up on the BSLDA.net uh, forums about Con, uh, Conrad Stout, who's over in Germany. And he was doing this, he basically created this version that worked, but only in BSNES, a certain version of BSNES, uh, the emulator, and in Higan. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't exactly comport myself well. I, I was basically frustrated, and I made a post that said, "Hey, why isn't why aren't you doing this? This guy's works in real and in a, on the real hardware, but yours doesn't. Like, what the hell? What's going on, man?" And fortunately for me, uh, Conrad took a look at the stuff, saw what he was missing, and he actually did. Hey, dude, this is really awesome. Thanks for linking. Instead of doing what he rightfully should have done (laughs) and just kind of e-bitch slapped me and said, shut up, dude. You can't even do this. (laughs) Like, why are you complaining? I was really fortunate. And so uh, Michael uh, Reichelt uh, started talking to Conrad, and they sort of worked out some issues, most of the issues, and they actually got it working in a far more stable state, and having practically nothing but free time on my hand, I agreed to be a beta tester for the SDS NES version. I've gotten out of the habit of using emulators. It's it's not like a morals thing or an ideological thing. It's just kind of, I'd rather play with real hardware. It's, yeah, me too. It's just not as fun for me. And so... They were using some really crappy kind of piecemeal bits of music for for testing purposes, and so I've I've long known about Zelda Reorchestrated, mm-hmm. a free to download and play uh, orchestral rendition of most of the Zelda games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're all done using. Uh, music programs, and I think there's one album that they released that was actually done with a live orchestra, but most of it is programmed. And so, it's freely avail- available. There's, you know, it's basically use it as long as you give credit where credit's due, which we've always done. Mm-hmm. I downloaded it and started uh, basically what I had to do was I had to take these WAV files, or MP3 files, I had to open them up in a hex editor and basically cut them off at a certain location 
So that would basically be an end of a music loop. And then I had to modify the header, uh, basically the information at the beginning of the file that said, this is this type of file and it has these attributes. And I basically had to change it into a slightly modified WAV file that had encoded in the metadata uh, a start loop point. And that's a specialized and, file format that the, the, the MSU right. writers came up with, right? What was the ex uh, file extension for that? It was. It's called PCM. Okay, uh, it, so they did just use PCM. That's right. Okay. Yeah, but they had to use a specific format of PCM. It required it that it be absolutely 44.1 kilohertz uh, resolution, and it needed to be 16-bit, and it's been a while since I've done any of that. I think it had to be Little Endian, mm -hmm. uh, where basically the smaller numbers are at the end, as opposed to Big Endian, which in computer terms means that the smaller numbers would be at the beginning of a number. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's the computer equivalent of reading left to right or right to left, respectively. Gotcha. And so being kind of a music buff, nerd, what have you, um, I was fairly familiar with this. And so on my own, I just kind of whacked up a, a large zip file just full of all these files, and I cut them down as much as possible in order to you know, reduce the amount of space. And still took up a lot, a lot, because WAV files are big files. And I uploaded it, say, said basically, you know, here, why don't we try this? And it was, it was relatively well received. Um, there have been people who have made better music packs who have used the links between worlds packs, um, which that. is kind of an iffy thing because that's, that's Nintendo's actual, um, yeah, that's their intellectual property, so I'm not sure how legal that is or if they're going to get in trouble. That's a neat idea. I would have rather had the orchestra one personally, but it's still kind of cool. And and there are people who, and there's nothing wrong with this saying this, there are people who still prefer the original uh, SPCs, the original uh, music that's played by the Super Nintendo, and that's fine. It's just the ability to add an option for those who want it I've always thought it was pretty cool. Right. And I jumped so, over... Was this one that you're actually talking about now? Is this A Link to the Past DX, or is this one of the older ones? No. Uh, a Link to the Past DX was uh, done mostly by, I think, Conrad, uh, Con, and a guy who went by the name of QWERTY MOTO. QWERTY MOTO, right. I could be mistaken about those names. There, There's a fairly large, about seven or eight people, who kind of took the basis of what Conrad worked on and kind of went in their own directions. And A Link to the Past DX um, had some other improvements done to it. It's it's a really polished piece. Right. Like, my only claim to pseudo-internet fame is that I was part of the team that really brought it out and made it freely available because this aforementioned not-to-be-named hacker on the net... <laughs> He had this he had this bizarre mentality. I'm not sure what's anyway, he would release videos of like MSU one hacks. Right. 
And there's still MSC One hacks that he's released videos of that nobody else has done. Right. And so for anybody who's listening who doesn't, videos, doesn't know who yeah. this guy is, right? So just to give a short little background, there's somebody in the, the retro gaming scene, which is, you know, even though we're talking about a planet full of people, it's still a relatively close-knit community. And we all share everything to a point, you know? So if I, if I spend money out of my pocket to make something, I'm not going to mail it to somebody for free. But if I work hard on something um, and we collaborate, we all stick it up on the cloud together and kind of work on it as a fun project. Unless it's a serious thing like, uh, like Captris, uh, his yeah. NES uh, HDMI mod, which is really more of a service, even at the price point that it's at. Yeah. I mean, we are a community. We we share information. Um, information is for the shared information is for the betterment of all, right. not just a select group of elites who basically get to say neater neater. Look what I can do. Right, and then this one person. Um, he he was notorious for a bunch of things, but then he started trying Bad to charge mods. people a hundred dollars an hour for Skype conversations to help do things. He started doing this where he would you know well I'll I'll release this if everybody pays me a certain amount of money. And, and I, I have such a hard books. time talking about him too because he uh, first of all I don't I don't even want to say his name because I don't want to give him any more credit than he needs. Infamy, yeah. It's... But the other thing that kind of drives me nuts is in reading some of his ten-page posts on some of these forums. I'm pretty sure he has a serious mental illness, which is such a hard thing to deal with because if somebody's missing an arm, I would be an asshole yeah. if I was like, haha, one arm. But if somebody looks perfectly normal and is acting like this, it's so hard to tell. And he just, he gives anybody who uh, is in psychology class has probably is, seen it, you know? Regardless of the reasons behind it, his behavior towards the community and those who have gone to him for information, for services, yeah. whatever, his responses have been not in keeping with the best interests of the community and inter-education as a whole. On this yeah. topic, and you know, to be honest, I think everybody in general kind of left him alone until he started ripping people off. Because I think everybody could kind of see there's something going on with this guy until he started ripping people off, and that's when you know, badly ripping up, people so. off, charging like four, five hundred dollars for, for simple mods, stuff that he didn't come up with, trade secrets. Yeah. yeah, it was a mess. And I remember the MSU one stuff, actually, because I remember he posted a Super Metroid one and then refused yeah. to share it. So I was wondering, so that you guys must have been part of the group that said, fuck it, I'll do it myself then. <laughs> so. Yeah, he posted a bunch of videos, and admittedly, whatever else is false, he did some really cool stuff, technologically speaking, and with hacking. You know, however simplistic it may be, it's still an accomplishment, and that still puts him in a minority. But he would say things like, I'm not going to release this patch unless I get paid, which yeah. is... Everything that we're all against. <laughs> yeah, and not, not even that. It's, it's a derivative work. It's, it's literally, he was trying to get money from somebody else's intellectual property that he just kind of futzed about with. And the community responded, and not positively towards this guy. Yeah. But he was a big impetus for me because... I took it as a learning experience. I saw what he was doing, and I'm like, I want to be everything that guy is not. <laughs> and so he had long ago released a video of Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. And even in the little short videos that he did of it, 
you know, we noticed problems. Mm-hmm. There was an issue where um, when a new track started, there'd be an issue with V-blank, basically the vertical blanking of of the screen, a screen refresh thing, as best as I can recall, mm-hmm. where there'd be like a flick, like a one millisecond flicker. That was quick, but visible. We fixed that. There were looping issues. Um, if a file wasn't found, then it would just, it was default to like this buzzing noise. Mm-hmm. And we fixed that. Uh, Khan actually implemented a really cool idea where if a file isn't found, it'll go directly and fall back on the internal sound, mm-hmm. which could be jarring, but it was still better than having an obnoxious buzz. Absolutely. And so we released the Zelda uh, link. That we released the link to the past MSU One patch. And it blew up far beyond anything that any of us expected. I mean, we got mentioned on Retro Collect. We got mentioned on a couple of other uh, third-party sites. Um, I remember I stumbled across it, like, right when it happened. Yeah. (laughs) And for a while there, it seemed like we inspired a lot of people to do a bunch of other... uh, MSU One hacks. I mean, some members from our team went on to fix and finish the Donkey Kong Country 2 MSU 1 hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the one of the guys who followed my work on on uh, the Zelda hack actually contacted me and he goes by the name of Dark Shark, Dark Shock. Mm-hmm. His real name is uh Mikel Larouche. He's from Canada mm-hmm. and um, he started working on a Mega Man X pack. Uh, And so I found... I mean, Mega Man X was a game that lent itself naturally to hard rock and heavy metal. Right, because it already kind of had that feel to it. Yeah. And originally, I actually started... Because I'm a musician, um, I actually started writing and recording uh, heavy metal versions of the songs. But... Of course, I made the mistake of looking at YouTube, and I found about 18 million Asians and West Germans who could do things so much better than I could. And there were already so, a bunch of heavy metal soundtracks released. Oh, yeah. Them. Yeah. And so I'm like, forget that. Download, 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 download. Chopped them up and released that pack. And I got, I tried to do it as consistently as possible. Like, like with the Zelda one. Um, there have been other teams who have come ac- come later after us and put together more polished versions. But and Dark Shark, Dark Shark went on to do like Secret of Mana. I think that was his. I I might yeah. Be I got the list up here. He he did a whole bunch of them. So did Cordy Moto, I believe, as well. Yeah. So I mean, there's like, a ton of different ones on here. Pillars in the gaming community. Yeah, like, Rock and Roll Racing. Uh, Turtles 4, uh, I forget. No, Hyperstone Heist is the Genesis version. Turtles in Time. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, yeah, there was Rock and Roll Racing, which is another one that he did. And right now, um, I'm sort of, I'm not out of the scene, but I'm not as big a part of it now. Right now, I'm working on what is now the open beta of Final Fantasy VI and doing bug tests and Oh, cool. And reports on that, finding out areas where there are issues. But 
it's been a real privilege to, you know, I hate to self-aggrandize and make myself sound like I was a bigger part than what I did, but it was a really, really cool thing to be on the, like, part of the first teams, like, part the crest of the wave into yeah. getting this stuff out into the community. Sometimes and, all it needs is just that push to get the ball rolling, too, you know? And, yeah, and then... Um, so the PS like, all this stuff is that that's yeah. more recent, right? Because that was just released. That well, yeah, it's the the BS Zelda pack has been something of up and down um, because I actually joined on with the fourth iteration of the team to try and get this thing done, and instead of joining in as music, I joined in with. Again, Conrad Stout, uh, my old buddy, um, to be a voice actor. I've had minor, semi-professional voice acting parts in the past, and it seems like they were really looking for somebody to be a narrator, and they actually contacted me out of the blue. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be the narrator. <laughs> And so, um, the narration was uh, when you did the um, with the the old man in the cave, right? Uh, actually, that was that was another guy who goes by the name of Iraq Brocks. Iraq Brock, Iraq Box. I I'll have to look that up. Mm -hmm. I apologize if you're out there watching watching this. I didn't memorize your name. I'll I'll look it up after this. I promise. Like flash it on the screen how it's really written. <laughs> but uh, I did the actual narration, which is basically talking directly to the player themselves. Uh, Iraq was the old man. Um, I did stuff like, uh, press the X button now. This is called the inventory screen. Gotcha. You know, stuff like that. And You're freaking me out. I was just playing it last night hearing your voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and there, there were several problems going throughout. We had timing issues. We had uh, sync issues. It it was a mess for a little while. I mean, and the thing I have to give absolute credit where credit's due right now because Con, uh, Conrad, he doesn't program in ASM. Like, not really. He programs directly in Hex and any programmer who is worth his salt will tell you just how difficult that is. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't compile anything. He opens up the, uh, he, he opens up the ROM, and he manually manipulates the hex digits. And it is... Wow. Yeah, that is... Time-consuming, to say the crazy. least. <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah. I'm not a great programmer. I, I just got past Visual Basics, Visual Basic, and this was back in like the sixth iteration, so years and years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so to see somebody basically wizard up stuff like this in the closest format to actual binary as possible is it's humbling. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, uh, we had a guy who was slated to be Ganon. And he did a really good job. Unfortunately, he had really, really poor equipment. 
Um, and come out. the recording itself wasn't working that well. Yeah. Oh, man. So for the BSLDA, right? So um, for people that want to play it, you download Map 1, and then you could kind of play through, and the original broadcast, you'd have to be able to beat it in an hour. This one you could save and go back if you want. So after day one, that's what I think confuses a lot of people, myself included. So after day one, how do you proceed to day two? Do you save it and then copy the save file? Do you just wait for the hour mark? No. This this is a really cool thing and something I didn't actually know about until the final final was released. But in retrospect, it's both obvious and really elegant. Uh, what we were doing originally what, during testing phase was we had four separate ROM files Mm -hmm. And, of course, like week one, week two, week three, week four. And in order for any save file to go to the next week, mm -hmm. uh, we would have to change the ROM, and that necessitated changing the name of the save file. Right. It was a minor thing, just changing it from like week one to week two. But still, it was a manual process, and it broke the flow of the game. In the final release, they compiled all four ROMs into a single file, and after each week is done, it saves, and to the best of my knowledge, it sets a flag in, in the data, in the save file, that says, okay, this week is complete. If, and basically, if this week is complete, then when you start up your game again, it'll go into the next week, which... So, and you know this by seeing the counter instead of being within one hour, now you're at one hour and. In addition, the the opening narration is completely different. Uh, things are changed. It It's as seamless as could possibly be. And it's actually more seamless, I should imagine, than the original broadcast. Well, because you don't have to download the ROM every week. <laughs> well, yeah, but in, instead of having to download and save and start, you know, this ROM file, it's the same game. It's all part and parcel of the same unique file, which is pretty amazing, actually. Right, so when I first started playing these uh, back before it was uh, done in MSU, you had to rename the save files and all that stuff. I think I used a hacked Wii to play them or something. Oh, nice. Um, but what is the actual flag that dictates between one week and the other? Does a player have to play all the way through the hour in order to make it? Or can you get all the stuff and then hit save? Because that was the thing that was confusing me. Because right now, if you do the save file trick, it'll completely screw up the game for map two. Yeah. Yeah, um, as best I know, it's a bit that is set when the timer runs out. Like, when the screen stops, when the screen goes gray, when you hit... It might even be... My best guess is that it gets flagged exactly when the results for the week screen shows up. I, I haven't confirmed that. I've not done any in-depth uh, research on it. I haven't had any conversations with Khan about it. This is what... My own intuition tells me, and quite honestly, I've been spending too much time just playing the thing uh, to actually be bothered with the minutiae and the technical details. I'm sure that somebody somewhere is going to do a technical write-up of it. They're going to disassemble it, say, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah this, this, this. Well, I, I, and, I would know, actually be oh, interested you know, in that as well, but I'm talking strictly from a, a playability. Because I sat down for the first time last night to play it, and I got about 40 minutes in, and then uh, I had beaten the two castles. I'd kind of wandered around and gotten as far as I could in that map, and then 
all right, I'm ready for week two. What do I do now? And then I ended up having to go anyway. So I just uh, I did really quickly just try well, the save trick, but that caused more problems than anything else. So yeah. Um, so when you were playing through, you just played all the way through. To the I played top. straight through. I confess that I actually didn't envision that somebody would save midway and then do a manual manipulation of the save file. Um, at this stage, that's that's not going to work, and it's way more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. I mean, for me, it'd be just like, okay, you, you finished in 23 minutes, which I think is my best time uh, for getting everything. All right, build up rupees. Uh, I think I managed to get somewhere around the realm of 700 rupees before the timer ran out. Right, because with the SNES, there's no 254 rupee limit or something. Right. right. So, yeah. Right. They've increased it from a simple uh, two-bit variable all the way up to, you know, a logical, a logical endpoint, which is the nine nine nine. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good. So, I think um, I think they did an amazing job on absolutely everything except articulating that point. You have to play through the hour. I think uh, there's probably going to be a bunch of forum posts about that, but. Uh, yeah, hey, well, small small little nuances, no big deal. <laughs> I think what they why they overlooked that was because of the nuances of the game itself. It's the medium in which it was originally intended to be played. There was a time period where all this stuff was streaming through your uh, Sengiga connector into your uh, BSX connector onto your TV, and there was no real option to save, and then start the next week, because the next week hadn't been broadcast yet. You had one file, and if you start it up again, if you somehow in that time period in the mid-90s managed to rename your save file somehow, right. Right. Yeah. then logic's, logic dictates that it just wouldn't recognize it, because we're looking for a certain... So this does true, truly mimic in the 90s. If you right. finished in a half hour, you just kept playing. You wouldn't yeah. shut your Super Nintendo off. You'd play to the broadcast. We have, te- we have technology nowadays that facilitates the ability to, to screw things up in more creative ways than we had back then. We have the ability to sidestep and go around. We have mm-hmm. cheat functionality that is far more widespread and the ability to create cheats on our own. Yeah, we can always find new ways to stuff things up. But the actual experience plays exactly as or better than was intended. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, That's pretty good, both because it mimics the the original and because I think... A lot of times, especially now for the the younger gamers that are so used to having like, all right, well, I'm going to play a new game. Here's a two-hour training period, and it's an 80-hour game. And just to say, all right, I'm going to play one hour of Zelda. I'm going to, you know, whether I win or lose, whether I get everything or not, and that's it. And then I'll save, and, you know, and maybe I'll do the second one now. Maybe I'll do it later. I think that's neat. I think that's pretty cool. And for me, it's become sort of a self like a uh, self-competitive, self-competitive. Oh, good lord, <laughs> I can't talk right now. Um, it's become sort of a, how many rupees can I get? How few hearts do I have to collect? Because the amount of hearts that you collect, uh, it, it might be the amount of hearts you've collected or the amount of damage that you've actually taken. Uh, I'm not quite clear on that point. It is actually tabulated at the end of each week's result. And so my, my competitive nature is telling me to get the best uh, perceived rate 
ratio of rupees collectible speed and damage taken that I possibly can. And it's made a game that the original Legend of Zelda is more than thirty years old. More than thirty years old today. I still play it. I still love it. Yeah. This twist, this remake for the Super Nintendo, has made a game that I knew inside and out, like as easy as breathing, fun, fresh, exciting, and difficult again. Because it's yeah. no longer oh, you know, I took damage, killed ten enemies without getting hit. You know, I got another heart. I'm back up to full spec. No. There are actual – the thing that I really love the most and which will probably sound kind of weird is the the random – the pseudo-random effects. Um, things like killing all enemies on screen, like having every enemy drop either a fairy or a blue rupee, which yeah, is yeah. how I got all those rupees in the first place. Uh, just – even the negative effects, like not being able to go to the spring for healing, right? Yeah, like that changes the dynamics of the game. Yeah, and totally. for me, that that brings the game one step closer to actual art. So it's it's an amazing experience, and I'm super thrilled to have been to have played any part. Uh, I'm I'm actually most proud of. Not the narration, which gave me a lot of lines, a lot of lines to do, but we had a guy slated to do Ganon, and his equipment wasn't up to snuff, and like his his Ganon lines were great. They were really great, but I couldn't make them I couldn't make them usable. Mm-hmm. Like there were quality issues, background noise issues, and so. I didn't want there to be a fifth team to try and remake this game. Mm-hmm. So I kind of stepped up said, hey, I've done a lot in the music industry. I could create a few. There were like three or four lines that Ganon had, and a couple of them were just, you know, beast roars. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hey, here's an example. Like, do you like it? Can we use this in case things fall through? And they did. So you're I, Ganon as well. I am Ganon as well. And <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm it, talking to Ganon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, middle-aged Jewish white boy from the Midwest. Yeah, I'm Ganon. Like, <laughs> hi, Link, give me a Triforce. What are you looking for? Come on. <laughs> Good stuff. I, I Don't ask me to do the Ganon voice because it was a combination of three – Three different dialogues. There was kind of as low as I can go type thing. There was one where I just did uh, what I call throat rumbling. Well, I'm just talking like this. And I pitched it down to give kind of a real rumble. Mm-hmm. And I spliced in things like bear growls, uh, tiger oh, roars. Awesome. Uh, there, was a, there was a lion roar in there at one point. As, as well as the sounds that I could make with my own mouth. And just kind of spliced it all in. And, of course, added the glorious reverb. And we have a Ganon that... Call me call me a narcissist, but mm-hmm. I like my Ganon more than I liked the Ganon from the original broadcast, which is... You can actually still listen to on YouTube. Some mm-hmm. enterprising and forethinking people actually recorded VHS tapes of the original broadcasts. 
Oh, and awesome. they're all available on YouTube, the the entire playthrough, which is amazing. And I haven't. Uh, I'll play through it probably by the end of the weekend, so I'm looking forward to see the ending. And then I, two I map phase two. The ending yet no, I haven't heard your game, and, and I haven't. I haven't even really gotten to week two technically yet. So, I guess that's the other thing is there's two maps. So um, that was yeah. something else that people were asking me about after I posted it. So it's essentially like Zelda one first quest, Zelda one second quest, right? So you still it's eight hours total, four hours in the first quest, four hours in the second, right? Yeah. Um, I was actually really startled when I learned that there were, in fact, two different iterations. And even now, I'm not clear as to the original broadcast, who got what, who got... Was there a, was there a choice? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there, the first map is the one that is most similar to the original Legend of Zelda, that, mm-hmm. we all, that gold cartridge that we all played. And um, unless you're in Japan, in which case you got a little disc. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a very similar, though pared down and condensed, layout to the original Legend of Zelda. The second map is substantially different. The uh, the overworld map is quite different. The the dungeon maps are completely different. Mm-hmm. In, in the first map, um, if you actually each um, dungeon map actually formed a letter. In the first one, in Map 1, it formed St. Giga, which was the company that Nintendo had a broadcasting partnership and which would actually broadcast the data from their satellites to their own receiver, which would then go into the BSX uh, Super Famicom add-on and then to your TV and, yay, you were playing. Um, The second map spells out Nintendo, which depending on your viewpoint, is either really classy or really tasteless. <laughs> but regardless, it's just like one of those little ha-ha-ha-ha, hey, isn't that fun? Um, but like the second quest, somewhat similar to the second quest of the gold cart, uh, it changes things up. And I'm actually a little terrified to try the uh, the second map because it'll be so radically different on... I'm wondering if, for me personally, because of my great nostalgia and great love and reverence for the original game, if it would be too different for me to accept as a person. But that's my own thing. No, but you're going to love there it. There are plenty it's, of people out I there. I played it for who, like 15 minutes just to see what it was like. You're going to love it. It's it's okay. It's new but familiar. It's the it's crazy, but it's uh yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. So wow, huh. that's. Well, that's awesome. Now I'm even more excited to finish the other three hours of Map 1 just to kind of play through, finally get to Mm -hmm. canon and everything. So, um, uh, are you doing another MSU game? I actually, um, I talked to, I I believe I talked to Darkshock, like, uh, last year once online, and Stemage, the guy that does the Metroid Metal stuff. Right. Um, And Darkshock, I'm pretty sure it was him. uh, Him himself actually gave me permission to use his and cut them in with the Metroid Metal files. So it would be infinitely easier than what you guys did. All I would have to do is just match the ASM files up. But I've had no time. I mean, I've just been swamped with all the, the stuff that I've been posting here. So that was one thing I always wanted to do. If you're uh, if you're bored and get some time to kill, I'll send you all the... Uh, Grant already gave me permission. I'll send you all his Metroid Metal files to, to do that one. But. Well, see, the thing is, this is probably sacrilege to most gamers out there, but I grew up hating Metroid. I... I, it's not my type of game. Oh yeah, at all. 
And in fact, like I, I tried to playing the original Metroid. I've got a copy of it. I tried playing Super Metroid. I had a copy of that when it first came out. Uh, my brother had it. I sold it years down the line. I I got a copy again when I started getting into collecting, like really big. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of sat on my shelf. And I I I tried playing the Metroid Metal, and it didn't really speak to me. But you mean the music? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's correct. And here's here's something that surprised me. There is a guy out there, Blake Robinson, of the Blake Robinson Symphonic Orchestra, who has created orchestral, very, very polished orchestral versions of games, of soundtracks like Banjo-Kazooie. Um, he's done the super, what he calls the Super Metroid Symphony. Uh, he's done Chrono Trigger. Mm-hmm. And mo- some of these are free. The, the Metroid Orchestra is actually really hard to find now. Uh, I'm not sure why, but it is. He released it free to the community, and it is. It was used in the version of the Metro Super Metroid MSU One Hack that I played, mm-hmm. and the orchestral score is haunting. It really changed the experience of the game for me. Absolutely, um, totally agree. Like just, it, it was. Shocking. This is a game who I've known I didn't like. I grew up not liking it. I still am not a huge fan. And to put that into perspective, to put this into perspective, the music alone was worth playing. Well, it, it not only worth playing, but it was so good, it drove me to spend to become a perfectionist of the game, to go around and find every object, not just I hate this game. The music's good. I'll play through it to the end. Hear what it has to offer. It does help set the tone. Because, you know, that's the one thing. My favorite games of all time are A Link to the Past and Super Metroid. And A Link to the Past is great, but, you know, you talk to the townspeople, you know, the the groveling guy sometimes gives you rupees, and Super Metroid, you are fucked. You are thrown on a planet that's invaded by aliens. You are all alone. Everything's trying to kill you. You could fall into everything. It's just the world just trying to murder you and you have to try to get out and kill everything in sight and it's like i mean it's that that orchestral soundtrack you know you crank up the stereo and you turn your lights off and you feel like you're in a cave you feel alone yeah you feel alone you feel bereft mm-hmm. it is it is scary it is aggravating it is <laughs> yeah it's such it a cool way to play it some of the uh some of the music like, uh, the battle against, I think it was Croconaw, the guy you have to uh, kind of drive back into the lava, I believe that's it. I'm, I'm not a huge Metroid guy, so correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. That music filled me with real anxiety. Like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
immense value, both historically and from a gamer standpoint. Mm -hmm. It is a solid game. It is a good game. My opinion is that it doesn't suit me, Mm. but the MSU1 patch has pretty much ameliorated all those issues for me. It is... This one issue, this, this one instance, the music is done so well, it completely changes the feel of the game for me, and it makes it fun, which is it's huge. Yeah, I want to try that with Prono Trigger, because I never really got into that game uh, for whatever reason. Maybe I just didn't give it a fair shot, but with the MSU1 patch, I don't know, maybe it'll be a, a completely different spin and make it worth it for me. Now, I will tell you that uh, Blake Robinson's Symphonic Orchestra, the, the Chrono Trigger music files and there is there is a uh, there's a zip file out there that contains everything except for the music files themselves that will make a perfect uh, MSU1 patch for it the, the actual music files are paid you have to buy them and i it, it's not expensive i think it's like 20 bucks and you get all three it they're available on louder.com um, along with his Banjo-Kazooie Orchestra, which <laughs> I can't stop listening to. I've been listening to it for the past two, three years, and I still love it. My mom likes it, and she hates video games. Huh. You but, know, it's funny you say that, because I'm looking at my MSU1 directory now, and the Chrono Trigger doesn't have any of the music files in it, so that must be it. I have to download them or buy them and download them, which, being a musician, I have no problem buying other people's yeah. music, so that's fine with me. But... <laughs> But, yeah, the I, I'll, I'll agree with you. Chrono Trigger, people love it. I like it. But it's not my end-all, be-all of games. Not even for the RPG genre. Mm. Um, but it is still a very good game. Um, I, I mentioned before the Final Fantasy 3 slash 6, depending on, you know, your viewpoint, whichever. I don't care. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Final Fantasy 6... MSU1 beta that I'm working with the guy on, Mm -hmm. that is my favorite game. That is a game I have lusted for to have an MSU1 patch. And I was fortunate enough that uh, I found the the forum site where the guy was talking about it. And and I was like, I was able to use my past MSU1 credentials as part of a couple of different teams to just say, hey, you know, if you, I have an SD to SNES, I have an oscilloscope, I have a bunch of technical equipment. If you want, I can test this for you. And about uh, two or three weeks later, the guy shoots me uh, uh, an email and says, yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, go to the site, download these files, tell me how it goes out. And we have gone through several, several big iterations um, with bug fixes, primarily getting stuff to play properly. And while there are still a few minor issues, I would say that the game is probably about 90% complete as far as MSU1 uh, iteration. Um, I'm, I'm not yet to the opera scene, so I can't comment on that difficulty or the final boss theme, which anybody who's played all the way through Final Fantasy uh, VI can just imagine switching between... Like, switching between essentially MIDI files is one thing. Switching between streamed audio and making it, and not making it jarring, right? that's going to be a little bit more difficult. 
Mm-hmm. So I can't comment on that, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. So do you guys have a, I mean, I know it's hard to say with projects, but do you have a general release in mind? Is it something that's going to hit in 2016, or is it just whenever there it's done? Is, there is no official release date. Um, it is an open beta, so anybody who wants to uh, go to the, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, it's uh, qhimm.net is the uh, is the forum where it's found. But if you want to go there, you can download the open beta. It'll link you to his the guy's GitHub page. Um, I use a uh, a targeted software called uh, Atlant at uh, pardon me Atlassian Source Tree, mm-hmm. which will allow me to it, it'll auto update and grab um, whenever there's a change, uh, uh, like a bit for bit change on. Uh, and is this something that needs to be compiled, or is it basically just a completed well, MSU game? This the Final Fantasy VI MSU one patch is is kind of in its own class, and I really love the way that it's done. What it is, it's an actual Windows install file. It, it's an actual executable, and what it does, it requires you to supply a a version 1.0 ROM. Uh, 1.1 and Japanese versions will be supported in the future. Mm-hmm. But it requires you to supply the Final Fantasy III 1.0 USA ROM. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you get it, just make sure it's clean. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter if it has a header or not. I know that hasn't really been an issue for the past five or six years, but there's still files that, you know, the SFC, the SMC debate. But you provide that file. You link this executable, basically in the EXC, it'll say, like, you know, find the directory where this file is, double-click on it, and then it'll go to a downloader. Like, uh, the next page in the EXC will give you the, a list of, and you can individually piece together your own unique soundtrack from, I think, three or four different well-regarded sources, and they'll actually say, you know, this one's complete, this one has most of everything, and it'll show you which soundtrack, which songs in the soundtrack are available. And you can actually, like, yeah, I want this one from this one, this one from this one, that one from that one. Or you can just do, like, the one I use, I forget the name of it, I'm, I'm incredibly embarrassed, but it's the one that's the most complete. And there is a, uh, there is a suggested option which will replace all of them with basically the most consistent uh, soundtrack that the author of the patch thinks works together the best and is the most complete, which is really, really convenient. But you can change that. That is that so cool. Yeah, and it'll basically say, okay, now you're ready to download. Like, go ahead. And it'll actually link to an online directory. And it'll actually download. It'll First, it'll patch your ROM. It will download the files. It will truncate for them, them for you. It will convert them into the appropriate format. And it'll set it up in a directory that all you have to do is drag and drop into your SD2 SNES or... I, I'm not familiar with Higan or BSNS that much, at least as far as the MSU1 stuff is concerned. Mm-hmm. I think it may be the same if there's... More work to be done. I apologize because I'm I'm not it's sure on the It's pretty much the same. It's largely similar. All the hard work is done for you, and I think that is 
a very classy way of doing it. It eliminates the possibility of somebody using like the old uh, SNES ROM util, uh, which asks, is it for a headered ROM or not? And if you choose wrong, it'll screw up your ROM because it'll patch it incorrectly. But this doesn't matter, takes all the hard work out of it for you. It is as close to point and click as possible. The only thing you need to do as a player is to supply the ROM. So yeah, everything that's else awesome. is done for you. It's it's a really, really elegant solution. I hope they progress like that in the future as well. It'd be nice. I don't really foresee it. I would love to see it, but I don't anticipate it. It's a lot of work, I imagine. This 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 is clearly a labor of love for this guy, and he's done everything he can to make this as seamless and painless as possible. Mm. Well, geez, man, this was absolutely awesome. I'm like, I'm, I'm looking forward to re-listening to it in my car when I'm in traffic. Like, this is this is actually really. I mean, I think most of the interviews I've been lucky enough to do are interesting, but this, especially because I was just playing it last night, like I'm totally sucked into this now. So just right, right at the forefront of your mind. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing this episode air as well. Cool. So uh, thank you for your time, and I will post it links to everything Dan talked about uh, in the co- uh, in the description section, so you don't have to like be driving and write down any of the links we're talking about. I can make it so anybody will just click on it. And uh, and yeah, I mean, do you have a, a website yourself, or do you just kind of still contribute on the forums and stuff? I do not have a website. Um, I am very particular about what projects I get involved in. It has to be interesting to me personally. Yeah, it makes and. Sense. At this point, most of the games that I really want done are done. Um, the I would love to see uh, Seiken Densetsu 3 done. I don't anticipate it, but I'd love to see it done. I would love to see Secret of Evermore done, because that's one of my all-time favorites. And I'd love to see the Final Fantasy 2 MSU 1 uh, project, which started but really exists only as sort of some technical data I'd love to see that completed. Hmm. After that, you know, I'm good. Yeah, we'll see. That's what I said, too, when I started the website. <laughs> I got 15 pages in and said, I thought this was great. I'm up to, like, 195, and I still have a backlog of 30 more pages i got to write for it. So we'll see. We'll see how quickly your retirement comes. But <laughs> well, thanks so much yeah. for coming on, and, uh, yeah, I'm all, you're definitely going to be hearing from me again. So All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care.